0: Good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to episode 11 of Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and I am the host of the show, and this week we have got a new iTunes review. So let's get to that straight away. Cats by Kissy Vance Now I know why cats walk alone. Loved it. Well, thanks to Kissy Vance for the review. Obviously, that's referring to Episode 9 a couple of weeks ago. The Cat That Walked By Himself by Rudyard Kipling. If you haven't heard that one yet, go back and check it out. And as a reminder, if you are enjoying the show, consider heading over to iTunes slash Apple Podcasts or on whatever listening service you use and leaving a rating and review for the show. iTunes is the most beneficial for the show as it makes it easier for people to find us. But now, with that being said... Let's move on to this week's show. This week, we will feature stories by Mark Twain. Of course, Mark Twain is the pen name of Samuel Clemens, who lived from 1835 to 1910. Now, I always feel like I'm doing a disservice with these short introductions to the authors we feature here on the show, because most of them are really interesting and deserve more than a minute or two of attention. But, you know, we can't focus on everything here. Anyway, Mark Twain is one of the more well-known authors in American literary history, probably mostly for his novels, the most famous of which would likely be The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Now, both of those novels were set in rural Missouri, where Twain was raised. Last week, we talked about Edgar Allan Poe and how he struggled to make a living as a writer. Mark Twain was able to do so pretty successfully some 20 years after Poe's death, Twain was a humorist, and speaking of last week's episode, I brought up how a lot of humor doesn't translate from era to era, but a lot of what Mark Twain wrote over 120 years ago and more still resonates pretty well. Now, Mark Twain traveled the world early in his career in addition to being well-traveled in the American West as a young man working as a miner and a steamboat pilot, among other things. These travels had a great impact on his writing, uh, obviously so in many of his world travels, as he was sent around to many places specifically to write humorous essays. His first big success was also our first story this week, The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County. This story was first published in November of 1865 in the Saturday Press, which was a literary weekly newspaper published in New York from 1858 to 1860, and again from 1865 to 1866. The version used for this show was pulled from a collection from Twain called Sketches New and Old, and it also features a prologue of sorts, which I included before the story. Now, I'll talk a little bit more about that prologue after today's stories. The title is also a bit different. It's called The Notorious Jumping Frog of Calaveras County, and another title by which the story has been known is Jim Smiley's Jumping Frog. Also featured on today's episode are two separate stories that fit pretty well together, And those are The Story of the Bad Little Boy and The Story of the Good Little Boy. Now, these two stories, as I said, fit pretty well together, despite having been published about six years apart. Both of them are a bit of a send-up of the Sunday school books of the era, which one can imagine were a bit more severe than you might find today, despite some similar themes. Now, I don't think you have to have gone to church as a child to appreciate these stories, but as a lifelong churchgoer myself, these stories are pretty hilarious. Anyway, The Bad Little Boy was published in December of 1864 in The Californian, which was a weekly literary newspaper that ran in San Francisco from 1864 to 1868, and The Californian also featured a couple of pieces by Ambrose Bierce, featured in episode 5 of this here show. The Good Little Boy was published in 1870 in The Galaxy, which was a monthly magazine that ran from 1866 to 1878, when it was absorbed by the Atlantic Monthly, which is now known as The Atlantic. And of course, The Atlantic is pretty well known and still running today, in 2018. Both Walt Whitman and Henry James, author of the great ghost story The Turn of the Screw, were notable contributors to the galaxy. Now, of course, this introduction can hardly be considered scratching the surface of the life and works of Mark Twain, but for our purposes, it works. So, with that intro in the rearview, let's move on to this week's stories. The jumping frog in English, then in French, then clawed back to a civilized language once more by a patient, unremunerated toil. Even a criminal is entitled to fair play, and certainly, when a man who has done no harm has been unjustly treated, he is privileged to do his best to right himself. My attention has just been called to an article some three years old in a French magazine entitled Revue des deux mondes, Review of Some Two Worlds wherein the writer treats of les humoristes Americanis, these humorist Americans. I am one of these humorist Americans, dissected by him, and hence the complaint I am making. This gentleman's article is an able one, as articles go, in the French, where they always tangle up everything to that degree that when you start into a sentence you never know whether you are going to come out alive or not. It is a very good article, and the writer says all manner of kind and complimentary things about me, for which I am sure I thank him with all my heart, But then why should he go and spoil all his praise by one unlucky experiment? What I refer to is this. He says my jumping frog is a funny story, but still he can't see why it should ever really convulse anyone with laughter, and straightway proceeds to translate it into French in order to prove to his nation that there is nothing so very extravagantly funny about it. Just there is where my complaint originates. He has not translated it at all. He has simply mixed it all up. It is no more like the jumping frog when he gets through with it than I am like a meridian of longitude. But my mere assertion is not proof. Wherefore, I print the French version, that all may see that I do not speak falsely. Furthermore, in order that even the unlettered may know my injury and give me their compassion, I have been at infinite pains and trouble to retranslate the French version back into English, and, to tell the truth, I have well nigh worn myself out at it, having scarcely rested from my work during five days and nights.' I cannot speak the French language, but I can translate very well, though not fast, I being self-educated. I ask the reader to run his eye over the original English version of The Jumping Frog, and then read the French or my retranslation, and kindly take notice how the Frenchman has riddled the grammar. I think it is the worst I ever saw, and yet the French are called a polished nation. If I had a boy that puts sentences together as they do, I would polish him to some purpose. Without further introduction, The Jumping Frog, as I originally wrote it, was as follows, after it will be found the French version, and after the latter, my retranslation from the French. The Notorious Jumping Frog of Calaveras County by Mark Twain In compliance with a request of a friend of mine who wrote me from the East, I called upon good-natured, garrulous old Simon Wheeler, and inquired after my friend's friend, Leonidas W. Smiley, as requested to do, and I hereunto append the result. I have a lurking suspicion that Leonidas W. Smiley is a myth, that my friend never knew such a personage, and that he only conjectured that if I asked old Wheeler about him, it would remind him of his infamous Jim Smiley, and he would go to work and bore me to death with some exasperating reminiscence of him as long and as tedious as it should be, useless to me. If that was the design, it succeeded. I found Simon Wheeler dozing comfortably by the barroom stove of the dilapidated tavern in the decayed mining camp of angels, and I noticed that he was fat and bald-headed and had an expression of winning gentleness and simplicity upon his tranquil countenance. He roused up and gave me good day. I told him that a friend of mine had commissioned me to make some inquiries about a cherished companion of his boyhood named Leonidas W. Smiley, Reverend Leonidas W. Smiley, a young minister of the gospel, who he had heard was at one time resident of Angel's Camp. I added that if Mr. Wheeler could tell me anything about this Reverend Leonidas W. Smiley, I would feel under many obligations to him. Simon Wheeler backed me into a corner and blockaded me there with his chair, and then sat down and reeled off the monotonous narrative which follows this paragraph. He never smiled, he never frowned, He never changed his voice from the gentle, flowing key to which he tuned his initial sentence. He never betrayed the slightest suspicion of enthusiasm. But all through the interminable narrative there ran a vein of impressive earnestness and sincerity, which showed me plainly that, so far from his imagining that there was anything ridiculous or funny about his story, he regarded it as a really important matter, and admired its two heroes as men of transcendent genius in finesse. I let him go on his own way— "'and never interrupted him once. "'Reverend Leonidas W... Hmm. Uh, "'Reverend Lee... "'Well, there was a feller here once by the name of Jen Smiley "'in the winter of 49, or maybe it was the spring of 50. "'I don't recollect exactly somehow, "'though what makes me think it was one or the other "'is because I remember the big flume weren't finished "'when he first come to the camp.' But anyway, he was the curiousest man about, always betting on anything that turned up you ever see, if he could get anybody to bet on the other side. And if he couldn't, he'd change sides. Any way that suited the other man would suit him in any way, just so he's got a bet, as he was satisfied. But still, he was lucky, uh, uncommon lucky. He almost always come out a winner. He was always ready and laying for a chance. There couldn't be no solitary thing mentioned, but that feller'd offered to bet on it. And he'd take any side you please, as I was just telling you. If there was a horse race, you'd find him flush, or you'd find him busted at the end of it. If there was a dog fight, he'd bet on it. If there was a cat fight, he'd bet on it. If there was a chicken fight, he'd bet on it. Why, if there was two boys sitting on a fence, he would bet you which one would fly first. Or if there was a camp meeting, he would be there regular to bet on Parson Walker, which he judged to be the best exhorter about here. And so he was, too, and a good man.' If he even see a straddlebug start to go anywhere else, he would bet you how long it would take him to get to uh, to wherever he was going to, and if you took him up, he would follow that straddlebug to Mexico, but what he would find out where he was bound for and how long he was on the road. Lots of the boys here has seen that smiley and can tell you about him. Why, it never made no difference to him, he'd bet on anything, the this fellow. Parson Walker's wife laid very sick once for a good while, and it seemed as if they war not going to save her. But one morning he come in, and Smiley up and asked him how she was, and he said she is considerable better, thank the Lord and his infinite mercy, and coming on so smart that with the blessing of providence she'd get well yet. And Smiley, before he thought, says, well, I'd risk two and a half, she don't, anyway. This year Smiley had a mare. The boys called her a fifteen-minute nag. But that was only in fun, you know, because, of course, she was faster than that. And he used to win money on that horse, for she was so slow and always had the asthma or the distemper or the consumption or something of that kind. They used to give her two or three hundred yards start and then pass her under way. But always at the vague end of the race, she get excited and desperate like and come cavorting and straddling up and scattering her legs around limber sometimes in the air, and sometimes out to one side among the fences, and kicking up M-O-R-E dust and raising M-O-R-E racket with her coughing and sneezing and blowing her nose, and always fetch up at the stand just about the neck ahead, as near as you could cipher it down. And he had a little bull pup that to look at him you'd think he wa not worth a cent, but to sit around and look ornery and lay for a chance to steal something. But as soon as money was upon him, he was a different dog, his underjaw would begin to stick out like the forecastle of a steamboat, and his teeth would uncover and shine like the furnaces, and the dog might tackle him and bullyrag him and bite him and throw him over his shoulder two or three times, and Andrew Jackson, which was the name of the pup, Andrew Jackson would never let on but what he was satisfied, and hadn't expected nothing else, and the bets being doubled and doubled on the other side all the time till the money was all up, and then all of a sudden he would grab the other dog just by the gint of his hind leg and freeze to it. Not chaw, you understand, but only just grip and hang on till they throwed up the sponge, if it was a year. Smiley always come out the window on that pup till he harnessed a dog once that didn't have no hind legs because they'd been sawed off in a circular saw, and when the thing had gone along far enough and the money was all up and he come to make a snatch for his pet holt, he see in a minute how he'd been imposed upon and how the other dog had him in the door, so to speak, and he appeared surprised. And then he looked sort of discouraged like and didn't try no more to win the fight and so he got shucked out bad he gives smiley a look as much as to say his heart was broke and it was his fault for putting up a dog that hadn't no hind legs for him to take a hold of which was his main dependence in a fight and then he limped off a piece and laid down and died it was a good pup was that andrew jackson and would have made a name for his if he had lived "'for the stuff was in him and he had a genius. "'I know it because he hadn't no opportunities to speak of "'and it don't stand to reason that a dog could make such a fight "'as he could under them circumstances if he hadn't no talent. "'It always makes me feel sorry when I think of that last fight of his'n "'and the way it turned out. "'Well, this year Smiley had rat terriers and chicken cocks "'and tomcats and all them kind of things till you couldn't rest "'and you couldn't fetch nothing for him to bet on but he'd match you. "'He catched a frog one day and took him home, and said he calculated to educate him. And so he never done nothing for three months but set in his backyard and line that frog to jump. And you bet he did line him too. He'd give him a little punch behind, and the next minute you'd see that frog whiling in the air like a donut. See him tying one summer set or maybe a couple, if he got a good start, and come down flat-footed all right like a cat. He got him up so in the matter of catching flies and kept him in practice so constant that he nailed a fly every time as far as he could see him. Smiley said all frog wanted was education, and he could do most anything, and I believe him. Why, I've seen him set Daniel Webster down here on this floor, Daniel Webster was the name of the frog, and sing out flies, Daniel, flies, and quicker than you could wank he would spring straight up and snake a fly off the counter there, and flop down on the floor again as solid as a gob of mud, and follow to scratching the side of his head with his hind foot, as indifferent as he hadn't no idea that he'd been doing any more than any frog might do. You never see a frog so modest and straightforward as he was, for all he was so gifted, and when it come to fair and square jumping on a dead level, he could get over more ground at one straddle than any animal of his breed you ever see. Jumping on a dead level was his strong suit, you understand, and when it come to that, Smiley would ante up money on him as long as he had a red. Smiley was monstrous proud of his frog, and well he might be, for fellas had traveled and been everywhere as all said he laid over any frog that they ever see. Well... Smiley kept the beast in a little lattice box, and he used to fetch him downtown sometimes and lay for a bet. One day a fella, stranger in the camp he was, came across him with his box and says, uh, "'What might it be that you got in the box?' And Smiley says, something indifferent like, "'Might be a parrot, or it might be a canary maybe, but it ain't. It's only just a frog.' And the fella took it, and looked at it careful, and turned it round this way and that, and says, Hm, so it is. Well, what's he good for?' "'Well,' Smiley says, easy and careless.' He's good enough for one thing, I should judge. He can outjump any frog in Calaveras County. The fella took that box again and took another long, particular look, gave it back to Smiley and says, very deliberate. Well, he says, I don't see no pints about that frog. is any better than any other frog. Maybe you don't, Smiley says. Maybe you understand frogs and maybe you don't understand them. Maybe you've had experience and maybe you ain't only an amateur, as a boy. Anyways, I got my opinion and I'll risk forty dollars that he can outjump any frog in Calaveras County. And the fella studied a minute, and then he says, kind of sad, like, Well, I'm only a stranger here, and I ain't got no frog. But if I had a frog, I'd bet you. And then Smiley says, That's all right. That's all right. If you hold my box a minute, I'll go and get you a frog. And so the fella took the box, put up his $40 along with Smiley's, and set down to wait. So he sat there a good while, thinking and thinking to himself. And then he got the frog out and prized his mouth open and took a teaspoon and filled him full of quail shot. Filled him pretty near up to the chin. And set him on the floor. Smiley, he went to the swamp and slopped around in the mud for a long time. And finally, he catched a frog and fetched him in and gave him to this feller and says, "Now, if you're ready, set him alongside of Daniel with his foul paws just even with Daniel's, and I'll give the word." Then he says, one, two, three, git!" And him and the feller touches up the frogs from behind, and the new frog hopped off lively. But Daniel gave a heave and heisted up his shoulders so like a Frenchman, but it wa'n't no use. He couldn't budge. He was planted solid as a church and he couldn't no more stir than if he was anchored out. Smiley was a good deal surprised, and he was disgusted, too, but didn't have no idea what was the matter, of course. The fella took the money and started away, and when he was going out the back door, he sort of jerked his thumb over his shoulder, so at Daniel, and says again, very deliberate, Well, he says, I don't see no pints about that frog, it's any better than any other frog. Smiley, he stood scratching his head and looking down at Daniel for a long time, and lastly says, I do wonder what in the nation that frog throwed off for. I wonder if ain't something the matter with him, and it appears to look mighty baggy somehow. And he catched Daniel by the nap of the neck, hefted him, and says, Why blame my cats if he don't weigh five pounds? And turned him upside down, and he belched out a double handful of shot. And then he see how it was, and he was the maddest man. He set the frog down and took out after that feller, but he never catched him. And here Simon Wheeler heard his name called from the front yard, and got up to see what was wanted. And turning to me as he moved away, he said, just sit where you are, stranger, and rest easy. I ain't going to be gone a second. But, by your leave, I did not think that a continuation of the history of the enterprising vagabond Jim Smiley would be likely to afford me much information concerning the Reverend Leonidas W. Smiley, and so I started away. At the door I met the sociable Wheeler returning, and he buttonholed me and recommenced, Well, this yer Smiley had the yellow one-eyed cow that ain't have no tail, only just a short stump like a banana, and— However, lacking both time and inclination, I did not wait to hear about the afflicted cow, but took my leave. The Story of the Bad Little Boy by Mark Twain Once there was a bad little boy whose name was Jim. Though, if you will notice, you will find that bad little boys are nearly always called James in your Sunday school books. It was strange, but it was still true. This one was called Jim. He didn't have any sick mother, either. A sick mother who was pious and had the consumption, and would be glad to lie down in the grave and be at rest, but for the strong love she bore her boy, and the anxiety she felt that the world might be harsh and cold toward him when she was gone. Most bad boys in the Sunday books are named James and have sick mothers— "'who teach them to say, now I lay me down, etc., "'and sing them to sleep with sweet plaintive voices "'and then kiss them goodnight "'and kneel down by the bedside and weep. "'But it was different with this fellow. "'He was named Jim, "'and there wasn't anything the matter with his mother, "'no consumption, nor anything of that kind. "'She was rather stout than otherwise, "'and she was not pious. "'Moreover, she was not anxious on Jim's account. "'She said if she were to break his neck, "'it wouldn't be much loss. "'She always spanked Jim to sleep, Ow! "'and she never <laughs> kissed him goodnight.' "'On the contrary, she boxed his ears when she was ready to leave him. "'Once this bad little boy stole the key of the pantry and slipped in there and helped himself to some jam "'and filled up the vessel with tar so that his mother would never know the difference. "'But all at once a terrible feeling didn't come over him and something didn't seem to whisper to him, "'Is it right to disobey my mother? Isn't it sinful to do this? "'Where do bad little boys go who gobble up their good kind mother's jam?' And then he didn't kneel down all alone and promise never to be wicked any more, and rise up with a light, happy heart, and go tell his mother all about it, and beg her forgiveness and be blessed by her with tears of pride and thankfulness in her eyes. No, that is the way with all the other bad boys in the books, but it happened otherwise with this Jim, strangely enough, he ate that jam and said it was bully in his sinful, vulgar way, and he put in the tar and he said that was bully also, and laughed and observed. That old woman would get up and snort when she found it out, and when she did find it out, he denied knowing anything about it, and she whipped him severely, and he did the crying himself. Everything about this boy was curious. Everything turned out differently with him from the way it does to the bad Jameses in the books. Once he climbed up in Farmer Acorn's apple tree to steal apples, and the limb didn't break, and he didn't fall and break his arm, and get torn by the farmer's great dog, and then languish on a sick bed for weeks, and repent and become good. Oh, no, he stole as many apples as he wanted and came down all right. And he was all ready for the dog, too, and knocked him endways with a brick when he came to tear him. It was very strange. Nothing like it ever happened in those mild little books with marbled backs and with pictures in them of men with swallow-tailed coats and bell-crowned hats and pantaloons that are short in the legs and women with the waists of the dresses under their arms and no hoops on. Nothing like it in any of the Sunday school books.' Once he stole the teacher's penknife, and when he was afraid it would be found out and he would get whipped, he slipped it into George Wilson's cap. Poor Widow Wilson's son, the moral boy, the good little boy of the village, who always obeyed his mother and never told an untruth, and was fond of his lessons and infatuated with Sunday school. And when the knife dropped from the cap and poor George hung his head and blushed as if in conscious guilt— and the grieved teacher charged the theft upon him, and was just in the very act of bringing the switch down upon his trembling shoulders, a white-haired improbable justice of the peace did not suddenly appear in their midst, and strike an attitude and say, Spare this noble boy, there stands the cowering culprit. I was passing the school door at recess, and, unseen myself, I saw the theft committed. And then Jim didn't get wailed, and the venerable justice didn't read the tearful school homily, and take George by the hand and say such a boy deserved to be exalted, and then tell him to come and make his home with him and sweep out the office and make fires and run errands and chop wood and study law and help his wife to do household labors and have all the balance of the time to play and get forty cents a month and be happy. No, it would have happened that way in the books, but didn't happen that way to Jim. No meddling old clam of a justice dropped in to make trouble, and so the model boy George got thrashed, And Jim was glad of it because, you know, Jim hated moral boys. Jim said he was down on them milksops. Such was the coarse language of this bad, neglected boy. But the strangest thing that ever happened to Jim was the time he went boating on Sunday and didn't get drowned, and that other time that he got caught out in the storm when he was fishing on Sunday and didn't get struck by lightning. Why, you might look, and look, all through the Sunday school books from now till next Christmas, and you would never come across anything like this. Oh, no." you would find that all the bad boys who go boating on Sunday invariably get drowned, and all the bad boys who get caught out in storms when they are fishing on Sunday infallibly get struck by lightning. Boats with bad boys in them always upset on Sunday, and it always storms when bad boys go fishing on the Sabbath. How this Jim ever escaped is a mystery to me. This Jim bore a charmed life. That must have been the way of it. Nothing could hurt him. He even gave the elephant in the menagerie a plug of tobacco— and the elephant didn't knock the top of his head off with his trunk. He browsed around the cupboard after essence of peppermint, and didn't make a mistake and drink aqua fortis. He stole his father's gun and went hunting in the Sabbath, and didn't shoot three or four of his fingers off. He struck his little sister on the temple with his fist when he was angry, and she didn't linger in pain through long summer days and die with sweet words of forgiveness upon her lips that redoubled the anguish of his breaking heart. No, she got over it. He ran off and went to sea at last, and didn't come back and find himself sad and alone in the world. His loved ones sleeping in the quiet churchyard and the vine-embowered home of his boyhood, tumbled down and gone to decay. Ah, no, he came home as drunk as a piper, and got into the station-house the first thing. And he grew up and got married, and raised a large family, and brained them all with an axe one night and got wealthy by all manner of cheating and rascality, (laughs) and now he is the infernalist, wickedest scoundrel in his native village, and is universally respected and belongs to the legislature. So you see, there never was a bad James in the Sunday School books that had such a streak of luck as this sinful Jim with a charmed life. And now, the story of The Good Little Boy, by Mark Twain. Once there was a good little boy by the name of Jacob Livens, He always obeyed his parents, no matter how absurd and unreasonable their demands were, and he always learned his book, and was never late to Sabbath school. He would not play hooky, even when his sober judgment told him it was the most profitable thing he could do. None of the other boys could ever make that boy out, he acted so strangely. He wouldn't lie, no matter how convenient it was. He just said it was wrong to lie, and that was sufficient for him. And he was so honest that he was simply ridiculous. The curious ways that Jacob had surpassed everything— he wouldn't play marbles on Sunday, he wouldn't rob birds' nests, he wouldn't give hot pennies to Oregon Grinders monkeys. He didn't seem to take any interest in any kind of rational amusement, so the other boys used to try to reason it out and come to an understanding of him, but they couldn't arrive at any satisfactory conclusion. As I said before, they could only figure out a sort of vague idea that he was afflicted, and so they took him under their protection, and never allowed any harm to come to him. This good little boy read all the Sunday school books. They were his greatest delight. This was the whole secret of it. He believed in the good little boys they put in the Sunday school books. He had every confidence in them. He longed to come across one of them alive once, but he never did. They all died before his time, maybe. Whenever he read about a particularly good one, he turned over quickly to the end to see what became of him, because he wanted to travel thousands of miles and gaze on him. But it wasn't any use. That good little boy always died in the last chapter and there was a picture of the funeral with all his relations and the Sunday school children standing around the grave in pantaloons that were too short and bonnets that were too large and everybody crying into handkerchiefs that had as much as a yard and a half of stuff in them. He was always headed off in this way. He never could see one of those good little boys on account of his always dying in the last chapter. Jacob had a noble ambition to be put in a Sunday school book. He wanted to be put in with pictures representing him gloriously declining to lie to his mother, and her weeping for joy about it, and pictures representing him standing on the doorstep, giving a penny to a poor beggar woman with six children, and telling her to spend it freely, but not to be extravagant, because extravagance is a sin, and pictures of him magnanimously refusing to tell on the bad boy who always lay in wait for him around the corner, as he came home from school, and welted him over the head with a laugh, and chased him home, saying, "'Hi, hi!' as he proceeded." That was the ambition of young Jacob Livens. He wished to be put in the Sunday school book. It made him feel a little uncomfortable sometimes when he reflected that the good little boys always died. He loved to live, you know, and this was the most unpleasant feature about being a Sunday school book boy. He knew it was not healthy to be good. He knew it was more fatal than consumption to be so supernaturally good as the boys in the books were. He knew that none of them had ever been able to stand it long, and it pained him to think that if they put him in the book he wouldn't ever see it. Or, even if they did get the book out before he died, it wouldn't be popular without any picture of his funeral on the back part of it. It couldn't be much of a Sunday school book that couldn't tell about the advice he gave to the community when he was dying. So at last, of course, he had to make up his mind to do the best he could under the circumstances. To live right and hang on as long as he could, and have his dying speech all ready when his time came. But somehow, nothing ever went right with the good little boy. Nothing ever turned out with him the way it turned out with the good little boys in the books. They always had a good time, and the bad boys had the broken legs. But in his case, there was a screw loose somewhere, and it all happened just the other way. When he found Jim Blake stealing apples and went under the tree to read to him about the bad little boy who fell out of a neighbor's apple tree and broke his arm, Jim fell out of the tree too, but he fell on him and broke his arm, and Jim wasn't hurt at all. Jacob couldn't understand that. There wasn't anything in the books like it. And once, when some bad boys pushed a blind man over in the mud... And Jacob ran to help him and receive his blessing. The blind man did not give him any blessing at all, but whacked him over the head with his stick and said that he would like to catch him shoving him again and then pretending to help him up. This was not in accordance with any of the books. Jacob looked them all over to see. One thing that Jacob wanted to do was to find a lame dog that hadn't any place to stay and was hungry and persecuted and bring him home and pet him and have that dog's imperishable gratitude. And at last he found one and was happy and he brought him home and fed him. But when he was going to pet him, the dog flew at him and tore all the clothes off him except those that were in front, and made a spectacle of him that was astonishing. He examined authorities, but he could not understand the matter. It was of the same breed of dogs that was in the books, but it acted very differently. Whatever this boy did, he got into trouble. The very things the boys in the books got rewarded for turned out to be about the most unprofitable things that he could invest in. Once, when he was on his way to Sunday school, he saw some bad boys starting off pleasuring in a sailboat. He was filled with consternation, because he knew from his reading that boys who went sailing on Sunday invariably got drowned, so he ran out on a raft to warn them. But a log turned with him and slid him into the river. A man got him out pretty soon, and the doctor pumped the water out of him, and gave him a fresh start with his bellows, but he caught cold and lay sick abed nine weeks. But the most unaccountable thing about it was that the bad boys in the boat had a good time all day and then reached home alive and well in the most surprising manner. Jacob Livin said there was nothing like these things in the books. He was perfectly dumbfounded. When he got well, he was a little discouraged, but he resolved to keep trying anyhow. He knew that so far his experiences wouldn't do to go in a book, but he hadn't yet reached the allotted term of life for good little boys, and he hoped to be able to make a record yet if he could hold on till his time was fully up. If everything else failed, he had his dying speech to fall back on. He examined his authorities and found that it was now time for him to go to sea as a cabin boy. He called on a ship captain and made his application, and when the captain asked for his recommendations, he proudly drew out a tract and pointed to the word to Jacob Livens" from his affectionate teacher. But the captain was a coarse, vulgar man, and he said, Ah, that be blowed. That wasn't any proof that he knew how to wash dishes or handle a slush bucket, and he guessed he didn't want him. This was altogether the most extraordinary thing that ever happened to Jacob in all his life. A compliment from a teacher on a tract had never failed to move the tenderest emotions of ship captains and open the way to all offices of honor and profit in their gift. It never had in any book that ever he had read. He could hardly believe his senses. This boy always had a hard time of it. Nothing ever came out according to the authorities with him. At last, one day when he was around hunting up bad little boys to admonish— He found a lot of them in the old iron foundry fixing up a little joke on fourteen or fifteen dogs which they had tied together in long procession and were going to ornament with empty nitroglycerin cans made fast to their tails. Jacob's heart was touched. He sat down on one of those cans for he never minded grease when duty was before him and he took hold of the foremost dog by the collar and turned his reproving eye on wicked Tom Jones. But just at that moment Alderman McWelter full of wrath stepped in. All the bad boys ran away, but Jacob Livens rose in conscious innocence and began one of those stately little Sunday school book speeches which always commence with, "'Oh, sir!' in dead opposition to the fact that no boy, good or bad, ever starts a remark with, "'Oh, sir!' But the alderman never waited to hear the rest. He took Jacob Livens by the ear and turned him around and hit him a whack in the rear with the flat of his hand, and in an instant that good little boy shot out through the roof and soared away toward the sun." with the fragments of those fifteen dogs stringing after him like the tail of a kite. And there wasn't a sign of that alderman or that old iron foundry left on the face of the earth. And, as for young Jacob Livens, he never got a chance to make his last dying speech after all his trouble fixing it up, unless he made it to the birds. Because, although the bulk of him came down all right in a treetop in an adjoining county, the rest of him was apportioned around among four townships and so they had to hold five inquests on him to find out whether he was dead or not, and how it occurred. You never saw a boy scattered so. Author's note This glycerin catastrophe is borrowed from a floating newspaper item, whose author's name I would give if I knew it. Thus perished the good little boy who did the best he could, but didn't come out according to the books. Every boy who ever did as he did prospered, except him. His case is truly remarkable it will probably never be accounted for. I think we've all heard it said that good deeds and kindness are their own reward, but for poor Jacob Livens, his reward was delivered a bit differently. Now one more note about the jumping frog, as I mentioned earlier, uh, that I would talk about the prologue later in the show Mark Twain did indeed publish the French version of the story as well as the English retranslation in that volume, Sketches New and Old. In the English retranslation, he left all of the grammar and syntax the same as it was in the French version, which of course in English makes no sense. If you're familiar with other languages and the different structures that many of them have, it's probably funnier than if you're not. But if you're inclined to check it out, again, the volume is called Sketches New and Old, and you can find the digital version of that collection free of charge on gutenberg.org. That's G-U-T-E-N-B-E-R-G gorg org. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours. If you did, spread the word. Of course, there is always the social media route, sharing posts from facebook.com slash syypodcast, retweeting and liking on Twitter and Instagram at syypodcast, but tell your friends too. Spreading the word is spreading the word, whether you do it by mouth or by keyboard, or by message in a bottle, or by leaving a review. You can do that anywhere you listen to the show, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, or iHeartRadio. iTunes is the most helpful, of course, and for those who leave reviews, every review that's left will be read on the show. I'll have background music for all of them, and if the occasion calls for it, there are sound effects to be had as well. If you leave your review on a different service and I haven't found it, just give me a heads up via email, syypodcast at com or on Facebook or Twitter at the aforementioned handles, and I will take care of the review at that point. Big thanks to those who have reviewed the show thus far, and remember, I want your stories. Send them to syypodcast at gmail.com for consideration. Thanks as always to FreePD for the music you've heard on this and all episodes of Stories of Your and Yours, and to freesound.org for the sound effects. Whatever sound effects I can't record in the studio, I get from freesound.org. For a full list of credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Next week, we're going to talk about a guy who literally slept through the revolution. Until then, this has been episode 11 of Stories of Your and Yours. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.